Not to be confused with an acute MI, cardiac arrest is fatal in 90% of non-hospitalized cases. Because the heart stops beating suddenly, reviving the patient requires the use of a defibrillator or CPR. On today's episode, one cardiac arrest survivor tells us his unforgettable story. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Vizient and Practicing Internist. And today I welcome Simon Hinley. Simon, thanks for joining us in the podcast. It's great to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa, and I moved to the U.S. in 1998. So I've been here about 25 years, and I've had a bit of a unique story. I work for Medtronic, and in fact, I work in the implantable cardiac defibrillator team. And I had a very surprising event happen to me back in 2019, where I suffered out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. That's amazing that you're still speaking to us about it. Yeah. So if I understand, you were in fantastic shape prior to this happened. Can you tell us a little about that? I'm an avid runner. I really enjoy that. Run about 10 plus marathons. And I was at a point where I was, in fact, just starting to train for a trail 50K. <laughs> so I felt like I was in tip-top shape. And out of the blue, I was on a conference call, in fact, with my manager who was based in Minneapolis. I'm based in Nashville, Tennessee, and we were on a WebEx call. So we were on video together. And out of the blue, I just went into cardiac arrest. And I was extremely lucky for so many reasons. Not only was I on camera, so she could see that I was battling to breathe. And then I dropped out of camera view. But my wife, who is seldom home, she works in an office, but that day she was home because we had a young child who was sick. And she came into my office to see if I was done with my call and wow. she found me on the floor. And my manager was still, in fact, on the video on my laptop. And my manager told my wife to start CPR immediately. And that's really what started the life-saving journey for me. Um, my wife gave me CPR for about eight minutes until the EMS crew arrived. And then they ended up giving me about 11 shocks for me to be stable enough to be transported to the hospital. And then they took me to HCA Centennial here in Nashville. <laughs> and that started a 10-day journey of a lot of tests. But ultimately, I was able to leave the hospital on my own two feet. So it really went from what could have been a near tragedy to an incredible story. I'm fascinated in the sense that, first of all, just the implications of all this, but how everything was aligned to actually save you at that moment when normally that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I have an immense appreciation for how important time is in a situation like this. Uh -huh. Having gone through this cardiac arrest now, I've, I've done a lot of research. And now, in fact, I work in a team that helps to treat this. And for every minute that passes, mm -hmm. the likelihood of your survival drops 10%. And so the fact that my wife found me within minutes was absolutely incredible. The quality of CPR that she obviously gave me, she right. wasn't trained, but she knew what to do. The EMS on 911 was superb in guiding her. And that truly is the bridge to what saved me. When you consider, Simon, that yeah. it really doesn't take long to start going through ischemic or anoxic brain injury. Yes. Uh, in fact, it's under four minutes. So from what I could tell from our conversation, you don't have any neurological deficits. No, I was very fortunate. And truly, it was time. Yeah. The fact that my wife found me so quickly. 
in a situation like this, my manager being in Minneapolis, they called 911 immediately and that started the ball rolling. But even that would have taken 10 minutes for the EMS to arrive and it would have been a tragic situation had my wife not found me. Were you having any symptoms prior to that? Were you having any chest pain or no? No, none. That's what was probably most alarming is that there were absolutely no symptoms. What they found after a number of tests when I went into the hospital, I had an MRI, a cardiac CTA, echo. Mm -hmm. They did end up finding evidence of scarring, but there was no ischemic heart disease. And so they surmised that it was probably caused by a viral infection at some point Hmm. and that I probably had myocarditis and that resulted in scarring. And so then it was really just a matter of probability and time if I was going to go into lethal arrhythmia. So no underlying atherosclerosis whatsoever? No, nothing. There's a recent study that came out, and obviously to all your listeners, always seek out medical advice from your own physicians, but that did show that among those patients who have some atherosclerosis, that extremely vigorous exercise can actually preclude to having a myocardial infarction. But you didn't really have that case. No, I in fact had read some of the papers and as I was trying to piece this together to figure out what potentially could have caused it, was it my training, was it overtraining? As much as I'd like to believe that I'm a great runner, I don't think that I've been able to push myself to that (laughs) level of dedication. But that is obviously one of the potential root causes of scarring. But in my case, I truly just don't know what could have caused it. How long did it take for you to get back into running or going back to what I guess we refer to as a normal life, though I'm not quite sure how to describe that? Yeah. I was in the hospital for 10 days. Okay. And then I went through cardiac rehab for about three months. That was a little bit of a frustrating period because in my head, I felt fine. Right. I felt like I could get on the treadmill and get straight back into it. But my ejection fraction still hadn't returned to normal. Mm. And so I still felt the fatigue. But it probably took about six months to feel comfortable where I could start training again. My doctor's advice is to hold back on distances like a marathon and not to push myself. That being said, last year I did run the Grand Canyon rim to rim, but I'm taking it a whole lot easier now, focusing on shorter distances and switching up my exercise to mix up running with some lifting as well. That's amazing. I don't mean to get too personal, but I actually exercise with some frequency myself. And when I got hurt, there was some depression and quite frankly, some anxiety and anger that occurred to me. Yeah. I'm curious if you experienced something similar. Yeah, it's a great question. So anxiety, for sure. I think it's been a bit of a roller coaster. When I had the cardiac arrest and I got the implantable defibrillator, I really believed that this was a random event and it would probably never happen again, (laughs) that my ICD was there truly as an insurance policy. And then a year later, I ended up going into ventricular fibrillation (laughs) and my device shocked me. And it took one shock, it was an appropriate shock, and the whole system worked before I even got in touch with my electrophysiologist. They had the full readout, so it automatically sent it to the hospital and they had the information and it was appropriate. And the fortunate situation about that shock was that I was unconscious when it happened. So I passed out and then my device fired. Well, that was fortunate. (laughs) 
Yeah. And then a year later, almost the exact same thing happened. It went into VIFA. I was on a work conference call and my device fired. And that one I felt I was very much conscious. And that had probably the most severe psychological impact on me. The fear that the device is going to shock you again. Right. I felt like I was going into constant non-sustained VT mm-hmm. and I wasn't. So there was a lot of psychoanalytical stuff happening there. And it really, I think, gave me a significant anxiety for probably the first two months after that shock. Knock on wood, I haven't been shocked in about 18 months now. So I think once they dialed in my medication, I'm feeling a whole lot better and less anxious. But I think exercise has also helped from a depression standpoint. Yes. I think one of the tough things to accept in a situation like this is I wanted to believe that it was a one and done and that I just jumped straight back into my same level of fitness. And the reality is I'm not there. I don't have the same cardiac output as I had before the cardiac arrest, Mm -hmm. but I'm probably exercising more, just not to the same veracity. And I'm doing different types of exercise now as well. So I think just trying to do as much as I can to stay positive. And then also from a career standpoint, I in fact ended up shifting my career. I've been with Medtronic, same company for 15 years, but one of the biggest changes for me was what I do and why I do it. And I feel like now I'm just a whole lot more on purpose. And so I moved from our structural heart team, which is an absolutely fantastic team, Mm -hmm. to our rhythm team, our cardiac rhythm management team. And it's just been truly inspirational to be on a team that is treating patients who have the exact same diagnosis as I do. And I think from a perspective standpoint and a mission standpoint, that's changed my outlook considerably. Simon, I really want to thank you for your bravery because I've actually dealt with plenty of patients who ICDs actually fired and it was nerve wracking. They were just going into panic attacks, not only because of the shock itself, which is not fun, but just the uncertainty when it's coming. So thank you for telling your story. I really appreciate that. But also your bravery that you're taking this difficult situation and doing good from it and changing your career as well. So highest congratulations. And I always feel that things happen for a reason and maybe this is what you're reasoning is. I'm obviously not giving it justice by saying that. So what are you doing now and what would you consider lessons learned from this and what further information do you want to partake to our listeners? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a very philosophical question that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Probably one of the biggest lessons is I think when you do encounter death in a very close way, Uh it changes your perspective on how you live every day. And I think having that insight into life it changes what you do and how you behave and why you do what you do. And so as a husband, as a father, it's obviously changed my priorities significantly. Mm -hmm. Family was important to me before, but it is of the utmost importance to me. As much as it sounds a little bit cliche, the idea that tomorrow is not guaranteed, it just brings a new meaning to me, knowing that technology is something that I'm very grateful for and in many respects is helping me to stay alive. But it's something that is always present. I cannot ignore the fact every day that I have a device that is monitoring my heart in real time. And I think it just reminds me that our time is limited. We have to enjoy what we do and try and do the best with the time that we have. And so I think from a perspective standpoint, that shift has been dramatic for me. I very much appreciate the term that you use that we don't have any guarantees in our future and you should live every day like it's your last and live to the fullest. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. And to our listeners, you can contact Simon at his email address listed in the resource section of our podcast page. You'll also find links to several resources. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast at vizianinc.com. 
And please join us for other Modern Practice podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thank you so much for joining